I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters. We've reached the end of the year and entered the season of giving. While many centers and individual studies are funded by grants from national institutions and organizations, such as the National Institutes of Health and the National Institute on Aging, a lot of work in Alzheimer's disease research is supported through charitable giving. Here at the University of Wisconsin, the Initiative to End Alzheimer's, or IEA, serves as the philanthropic home that raises funds for all of the Alzheimer's programs across the UW. The funds raised go toward Alzheimer's disease and related dementias research, community education and caregiver support programs, training for early career care professionals and scientists, programs focused on addressing health disparities, and so much more, helping our center grow one step closer to a cure for Alzheimer's disease. Joining me today to discuss the impact giving can have on Alzheimer's research is Mr. Dave Adam. Dave serves on the Board of Visitors for the IEA. As a retired financial services professional, he devotes his time to family and his passions for nonprofit leadership and long-distance biking. In the spring of 2022 and 2023, Dave embarked on solo biking expeditions throughout Canada and Australia to raise funds for the IEA. Dave, welcome to Dementia Matters. Thank you. To begin, can you tell us if you have a personal connection to Alzheimer's disease and and how that connection might have ignited your interest in supporting the IEA? Sure. You know, unfortunately, I do have a connection. My father and my grandfather on my dad's side succumbed to dementia-related diseases. And in my dad's case, he had a minor stroke when he was about 70 years old which likely led to vascular dementia. And he passed away in 2011 at just 77 years of age. I'm sorry to hear about your family history, though, of course, I'm appreciative that you have used this as a reason to to do good in the world. You know, there are a lot of people with family histories of dementia of some kind that don't go into the charitable work that you're doing. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, what was it for you that led from having the family history, observing what dementia looks like, to then sort of having this mission to be on leadership boards to to drive philanthropy for research and care? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's a couple reasons. One of them is seeing my grandfather and then my father uh, in some respects waste away and really leave the earth before they had exited, if you will, um, and the impact it had on my grandma and my mother made me not want to see my wife experience that. And it made me not want to see my kids experience what I had to go through. So that was certainly an impetus. And I think that that's part of it. And I just, generally speaking, I was raised in a give back culture. And to me, it's important to use the talents that you've been given and to hopefully reach out and explore new talents and take on new challenges that you might not have thought you could have done uh, while you're here on earth. So it's sort of maximizing my time here to the best use of things that go beyond just benefiting me, but benefiting my generation and hopefully future generations. What impact do you hope to make through your support of the IEA? Well, it's a daunting disease and and there's so much effort and resources going 
to try to come up with solutions and the management of the symptoms. For, from that sense, it's kind of easy to feel overwhelmed and, and immaterial. But at the same time, there's fulfillment in some of the one-on-one interactions that I had when I was on my bike rides. And now in serving on the IEA Board of Visitors and increasing the reach of people who know about what the IEA is doing in research and an ongoing education for those suffering from the disease, their caregivers and their loved ones. So I guess it's it's a combination of kind of fitness-related fulfillment, but also serving on the board and, and kind of seeing what the board and the staff at the Madison uh, IEA are able to do to help the cause. Within your work with the IEA, can you share with us a specific example of something positive, positive change that you've witnessed or been a part of that just kind of shows the benefits of philanthropic efforts? I'm going to go to my bike rides on this one. This is less IEA specific and more general. But I think when I've taken these long bike rides in Canada, it was really about 40, um, 200 miles across the whole country. In Australia, it was over 2,000 miles. I'd be exposing myself uh, by riding a bike on my own. And I'd often meet people on the way and they would say, what are you doing? And I would say, well, I'm biking for the benefit of Alzheimer's on my own. And that, in some respects, let them ask more questions than they otherwise might have. And through having a basic dialogue, they oftentimes opened up and many people would say, you know, my mom or my dad or my aunt has struggled with dementia for the longest time, and it's a deadly disease. And, and then we talk about what that means and, and, and sort of how they're dealing with it. And it seemed like my exposing myself to the elements, because when you're biking, you've got to deal with the weather, you deal with where am I going to get my next meal, where am I going to sleep? And they seem to, in many cases, people that would approach me open up and share more things than I otherwise might have gotten. So if anything, my exposure IEA has allowed people to talk about the subject because certainly in my grandparents' day, when my grandfather was suffering, it was a little bit taboo to talk about, well, geez, grandpa's got a memory disease or Alzheimer's. You just don't want to do that. And I think people are more willing to share those experiences. You look at Bruce Willis and others recently, it's becoming more commonplace. And I think in that regard, it's helpful because it allows caregivers to feel like they're not alone. And IEA, in some respects, by the mission it has through its educational outreach, is providing for opportunities for people to join communities that can make their experience not a lonely one, but a one where they're sharing the road, if you will, with other people. And I appreciate that, Dave, because you're speaking to the stigma that still persists to some degree in our culture when it comes to dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And you're absolutely right that awareness and education is the first step in addressing that stigma and making this a conversation uh, that families and neighbors and communities can have. You know, in one of our prior conversations, you mentioned that by biking, you are vulnerable. You are physically vulnerable to the elements, to exposure. But then when you talk to people, you be, you are vulnerable in sharing your own personal story. Uh, and I guess I'm wondering if you could share with us an encounter that you've had on one of these bike rides where you shared that you're doing this for, for Alzheimer's disease and the initiative uh, and what that conversation looked like. Yeah, I had so many, but I'll give you one that probably appeals to the audience because it's so unusual. So I dropped into American Samoa before I did the Sydney Australia bike ride 
and while I was there, I was staying at a small beach resort for a couple days. And I talked to the owner, whose name was Candyman, uh, about what I was doing. And he just started talking about this lady who was one of his neighbors, whose father was suffering from memory diseases. And Candyman would produce this stew out of octopus. He'd take the head of an octopus and including the uh, kind of like the, the, I don't know what we'd call it, it's almost like the, the ink the octopus would spray when it was attacked. He'd blend it into a stew and give it to this gentleman and the guy's memory would come back for about three weeks and the lady swore up and down. So Candyman's experience with Alzheimer's was one of his friends and her father and the fact that this homeopathic remedy, if you will, seemed to provide some relief, but it wasn't something that was a panacea that lasted forever, but it did bring things back a little bit. So when I got back to the States, I shared that with the IEA staff, because one doesn't know what sort of elements within things natural or things created artificial could provide some relief. So that was one of my more unique adventures, if you will. And that's a very interesting story. And, and, you know, as a geriatrician in a memory clinic, I hear lots of different homeopathic remedies that people read about or try. And I have never heard that one before. And of course, this is a, an academic evidence-based podcast, Dave. So I'm not saying that that one is, you know, is something that people should try, but certainly I think it it is a reminder that we need to explore all possible venues uh, when it comes to treatments. And this is the point of clinical trials. And this is something that you talk about and that you're raising awareness and funds for the the value of actually studying these different interventions and not just all the same kind, but many different diverse ones. Uh, you know, I think some of our listeners, Dave, are probably interested in understanding the logistics of these very long bike rides that you're taking. And just some general questions that come to my mind you know, what are you eating during these long rides? How often are you stopping? I mean, how do you even know where you're going to spend the night? So if you don't mind giving us just some background, the distance, the the trip itself, you know, it would just be interesting to know what caught you off guard and what you actually were prepared for. Sure. I'd be happy to do that. And I got to say, this is kind of embarrassing because I read your article, Nate, in the W. Madison Alumni Magazine, how healthy you are in terms of you eschew sugar and you don't do much caffeine or alcohol. So I'll give you some, some commentary, but it's more of a man versus food than a Dementia Matters podcast in the next few minutes, if you don't mind. Um, I would tend to bike about 110 miles a day on average when I was crossing Canada. And when I did Australia, it was only about 90 miles a day because I had more elevation. So riding a steel bike with maybe 40 to 60 pounds of gear and food and water on it and doing elevation that in many cases averaged between four and 6,000 feet a day, that's about a mile of straight up. I'd burn through 6,000 or more calories a day. So with that in mind, my food choices were not the kind of food choices I have outside the bike trip. Uh, because I was way too much simple sugars and way too much sugar. But if I didn't do that and tried to eat healthy, I would wake up uh, three or four times in the night eating. So I'll give you a, a day, maybe as if I finished the bike ride and then walk through a 24-hour cycle. So I tried to find my lodging between 2 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I like to leave, as they call it, a big light window. So if I have any challenges, I've got time to to remedy things before it gets dark. So I wasn't a big fan of biking in the dark. And for me, a Super 8 would be a typical stay, something that was pretty cheap. It had a dependable bed, hopefully no bed bugs, uh, free toiletries and a free breakfast. And I would 
they'd also let me store my bike in my room, which was nice because many of the fancier places that I sometimes got forced to stay at uh, would not. And they'd say, well, just store it down here by the reception desk. And that was something I was literally doing. So I traveled with two sets of clothes, um, two sets of bike clothes and one set of other clothes. And typically I'd roll off the set of bike clothes I'd use for the day. I'd wash it in the sink and hang it up. And then I would charge about six different things into various outlets because today's bike rides, you've got bike backlights, front lights, bike computers, GPS devices, and so forth. Uh, so it was quite a bit of charging going on. So it helped to have electricity. So I then go on a walkabout and I'd look for food. And typically I'd try to find about 5,000 calories of food, uh, which is a lot. <laughs> um, and again, the food items I would choose, like for example, in Canada, for some reason, pumpkin pies, even though it was their spring, was really popular. So I pick up a pumpkin pie and I eat the whole thing for breakfast sometimes. Uh, it was sort of crazy, but I try to eat healthy for dinner. So I'd get salmon, I'd get vegetables, things that I wouldn't need to carry in the bike during the course of the day. I'd eat a healthy meal, usually around 5.30 or 6. And I eat again about 10 o'clock. In between 6 and 10, between my first and second dinner, what I would do is I would uh, call my wife, check in, tell her I'm okay. Uh, then I would look at the next day's schedule. And that would include where am I thinking I could go? And I would look at several things. One of them would be what's the wind speed and wind direction going to be like? That was probably my most important factor. Then secondly, uh, what's the temperature going to be? Uh, is there going to be rain? And then maybe what are some of the stops along the way that I could look to that would help refuel me? So where could I get water or some kind of a Gatorade type product? And where could I get food if I needed it? And if I couldn't, I'd have to stock up with more food. And then lastly, I'd look at hotel motels if I could find something. So that's sort of what, what I did. And then I would try between the first dinner and the second dinner to go about and look around to think of things that I could blog on because I tended to blog every day and that took over an hour a day. And I'd look at Atlas Obscura and TripAdvisor and I talked to the hotel providers um, as to what are some things in the area that are worth seeing and that people may not know about. So it's a bit of a Charles Corralt kind of thing. For those older listeners who remember Charles Corralt would go around on Sunday mornings and he would talk about the common side of Main Street that many people did not realize, but in some respects by having a personal story, which many people do, uh, and many of them have stories related to Alzheimer's as we talked about earlier, it would bring the conversations to life a bit more. So that was sort of my, my day, and then I would have lights out by 11 and wake up usually by 5 o'clock in the morning, um, stretch, make sure my bike was in one piece and that things were ready to go. I'd eat as much as I could take uh, at the Super 8, which often was like three or four waffles and as many yogurts and dairy that I could handle and as many fruit as I could fill myself up with. And then I'd start to do the biking as soon as I could with light available to make it happen. So then I would carry the process over the next day and do the same thing over again. And it looks and sounds difficult, but once you get in the routine after a couple of days, it becomes relatively straightforward and you don't mess around too much. But my wife would ask me, well, don't you have a lot of free time to you know, do whatever? And I would say, no, it's pretty much every minute is sort of taken up. And if it isn't taken up, I'll seek out something that may add to the visibility of what I'm going through because certain people uh, may want to repeat what I'm doing and others may just want to know, you know, what's going on in, in the, the burbs of Saskatchewan or, or Manitoba that would make you want to actually go there in the first place.
Dave, thank you for sharing that. That you did answer a lot of my questions about the process itself. And I'll start by telling you, you know, what you read is not always what happens in the real world. I am far from following a strict healthy diet, but I will say I will forever consume coffee. So you, I have a lot of caffeine intake. So, um, and I, you know, I'm sure there's a wonderful analogy here with your trip and even being a care partner for someone with Alzheimer's or dementia or going through that process yourself. There's so much that you're talking about, the physical health, the mental health, the curiosity, the camaraderie, the social part of it. So moving aside your very interesting diet and your lack of sleep, in my opinion, um, it, there's, I, you know, it's pretty remarkable what, what you're doing or what you have done. Uh, and I wonder, you know, for you, did it, has it changed those two major rides that you've done? Has it changed how you feel about dementia or the, your perception of Alzheimer's or what you think your future in this field and in the work you do will look like going forward? Ooh, um, I think in, in to answer that question, the biggest impact I can make being more of a financial services person. I, mean, I have degrees in accounting, uh, finance, and archaeology, so I'm not going to be the kind of person who's going to discover the cure for Alzheimer's. But what I can do is I can help people in a one-on-one -on -one capacity, and I can raise the bar, if you will, a little bit in terms of making people uh, aware of what resources exist to find care. And even from the, the view of I've had neighbors who've approached me and said, we have a friend of ours or one of our family members now has come down with, with uh, dementia. What do we do about it? I feel like can better provide them some examples of places they can go to, because in many cases, people don't know where to start. And if you can direct the horse to water, so to speak, uh, it's up to the horse to actually drink. And maybe now having been on a few of these longer distance treks, I can better approach people. And also by being on the board of visitors of the IEA, I have a few things that I can offer up that point people in the right direction and then let the experts, if you will, take the reins and help out those individuals in a much better way. And in that experience as a IEA board of visitor member, do you envision that charitable activities are going to change over time or evolve knowing what you know? You know, what do you see the next five years looking like for, for the IEA and for all charities who are working in the Alzheimer's space? Well, I can give you my sense of what I'm planning on doing. I can't necessarily speak to, I can speak a little bit to the IEA, but I'm also not the expert. So let me just offer up what my view of, of where my charitable involvement will go. And as a recently retired finance executive, I, I feel as though I still have connections in certain spaces, and I feel I'm topical with understanding what some of the issues are from a marketing and a financial reporting perspective and so forth. So while I still have some of that relatively current knowledge, my intention is to serve on as many boards as I can. I'm on four right now, and I may join the fifth next year. And the hope would be that I can offer some advice from more of an advisory perspective, then as my talents begin to diminish because I'm not in the game, if you will, as readily and as often 
and I've seen too many people that have served on boards that maybe stay a little bit longer than maybe their, their value is, although they bring in good institutional knowledge, they may not bring as much industry knowledge. My hope would be that, that I am able to shift more to a individual role of helping people uh, being on the ground as opposed to being behind a table in a board meeting. So that would be my goal. As far as the IEA goes, what we're trying to do is uh, certainly raise money to enable our research efforts to go further. And we've done a great job with some of the uh, help of like Sterling Johnson, Dr. Sanjay Asana, and Cindy Carlson, who do such a great job uh, of sort of helping, I would say, people understand the issues and conveying what UW-Madison is doing to address some of the issues, in particular, the long-term studies we have of people who have family members suffering from Alzheimer's. Uh, that work at UW-Madison, which goes back more than 20 years, is among the longest standing in the industry. And as we start to understand how biomarkers and some of the, the blood-based uh, tools we're using are able to detect Alzheimer's better, the years of history we have put together in terms of these biobanks, I think will serve uh, many researchers who have ideas, not just Octopus Inc., but truly quantifiable things to see if that is making any difference. So to end, Dave, I'm wondering, based on your experience, what advice would you give to someone who's looking to make a meaningful impact through philanthropy, but doesn't really know where to go or, or where to start? What would you tell them? I'd first turn the mirror in on oneself. And, and by that, I mean, ask yourself, what are you passionate about? What activity would you be willing to wake up an hour earlier than normal to get to while not compromising the amount of sleep you should have just to make sure you get that right? Because certainly I didn't get enough when I was in uh, on my bike rides. But first find your motivators, then look around to your friends and, and your associations, and that could be religious, civic, or cause-based, and inquire and ask them, what could I do to help? There's so much need in so many areas that if you can tie into things that you are passionate about, it likely increases your ability to get through the occasional rough patches and learning curves that occur in most new relationships. And, and volunteering is a, is a type of that. I mean, if we think about when we first met the uh, special someone that maybe we're attached to now, what got us through was probably a little bit of euphoria about meeting the person initially. And what kept us through was the fact that we wanted to keep that connection going. And nonprofit work is also something that is not all rosy. There's a lot of things that can make you frustrated, but to the extent you can find something that greatly moves you and makes you passionate, you're more likely to be able to stick through it. And in the end, then hopefully make a difference that you otherwise might not have made. Well, and on that note, Dave, we conclude our interview and I very much appreciate your time. Would you like to share anything else with our listeners? I guess if folks are still hanging out to the podcast and they would like more information on what I did on my trips, I actually did five cross-country rides with the exception of Australia, they could go to my blog and that would be at uh, biking, B-I-K-I-N-G, the number four, followed by ALZ, short for Alzheimer's, so biking4alz.com, and you'll probably include that in your reference notes too. For the listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the UW Initiative to End Alzheimer's or make a gift that supports this podcast, visit the show notes to learn more. And Dave, thank you for all the work you're doing and the work you continue to do in the future. Thank you, Nate. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. 
Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Or tell your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. Please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes on Aging for Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Amy Lambright-Murphy and Kaylin Rowerdink and edited by Hao Ming Meng. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.